So today I'm going to do an episode that's similar to the minimum wage episode in terms of how I'm going to go about explaining things. I'm going to be looking at a lot of articles I've run into over the last couple weeks, but we're going to be tackling a completely different topic. And that, that topic is the state of China's economy, some ways of thinking about it, and looking at some macro trends to contextualize things if you're thinking about China. And I'm coming to this as a bit of an amateur. I've, I've read a couple books about China's economy over the last few years, and I, I follow the news, but I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like I'm some sort of reporter on China or somebody who's written beats for China or covered China's financials specifically. But the, the, there's just some important trends to look at, some important things to think about, and it's especially important because of um, the, the, the way that China's being brought into the, the narrative of foreign policy. So, so, so one thing I just wanted to, 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 to frame the, um, r- the reason why we're even talking about China today, um, I wanted to quote some reporting from the Wall Street Journal that says, nine of 10 Americans view China as a competitor or, or enemy, and nearly half believe the U.S. should seek to limit China's power, according to a Pew Research Center poll published on Thursday. A Gallup poll also released this week put China's unfavorable view among Americans at 79%, by far the worst reading since its polling began in 1979. Only Iran and North Korea scored worse. Um, so for, for that reason, I, I, my, my perception of a lot of news that I've been listening to over the last several weeks has just been reframing American foreign policy to be about China. And we've seen that since Trump's rise to power, right? I mean, he talked about pulling the troops out of the Middle East, but then he was still hawkish on China, at least to some extent. So we've seen the reframing of U.S. policy since the Bush and Obama years to be more about China than about the Middle East. And, and there are good reasons to uh, start thinking about it that way. Um, there is one article I'm not going to dig into too deep, but I think it's worth other people's consideration. And I just worry that I'm a bit too ignorant to, to really speak to it and do it justice. But uh, so there, there's a website called The Gray Zone and Gareth Porter, he wrote an article and it kind of talks about how people are perceiving the Uyghur genocide and some of the numbers being used to discuss the, the, the alleged by the U.S. genocide of the Uyghurs. And he gives a lot of information that could cast doubt on what is happening there. And he kind of talks about how it may just be that China is applying rules to the Uyghurs that they were not previously applying to that group um, for, for, for several reasons. And he, it's more thorough and rigorous and I think it's worth, it's worth our time because if the, there's an active effort to reframe China as the enemy, then the, the, the maybe we, we should look at these things in a um, cognizant man, manner because it, it's not um, unreasonable to think that the narrative being spoon-fed spoon by almost all arms of media could, could potentially have propaganda elements. And it's not to say it's intentional. It very well could be, but you should at least be skeptical about the way that the narrative is being put forward. Um, so so Gareth Porter at the Gray Zone, and um, it, it has an article that, that indicates that the U.S. alleging genocide in China, it should be obvious if you search the, those terms. 
Um, okay, but on that note, I wanted to talk about some macro trends in China's economy. I want to start with an article that was in the Wall Street Journal on March 1st titled Falling Births Put China Growth at Risk. Okay, so to, to, to quote it a little bit, in the short term, the Chinese economy looks comparatively strong, helped by its quick stamping out of the virus's spread and heavy state investment. And some economists this year predicted that China could overtake the U.S. as the world's largest economy by 2028, years earlier than expected. Right. So 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 it's mentioning that uh, these are common narratives you might hear on CNN, but it's like talking about how China is relatively successful and they got rid of coronavirus pretty quick. So, of course, they're doing so much better than we are. So the article goes on. But the world's most populous country is losing when it comes to demographics ahead of the results of China's once a decade census. There have been several indications that fewer babies were born in the country in 2020 than in any year since 1961 when China suffered mass starvation. Okay, and then here's some more selected commentary. A report from Capital Economics in February says it is possible that slowing productivity growth and shrinking workforce would prevent China from ever overtaking the U.S., or that if it does, the U.S. would re re regain the top spot again, helped by immigration that keeps refilling its supply of workers. The, the article goes on to compare it to when Italy in the late 80s overtook the U.K., in terms of um you know in, in terms of the size of the economy but then the uk overtook italy um afterwards okay china's workforce is expected to shrink by more than 0.5 percent a year as fewer young people replace a growing number of retirees in the u.s by contract the workforce is expected to expand through the next 30 years supported by a higher fertility than in china and by immigration um Okay, and then it goes on to, to cite estimates on what what people expected the drop in births to be for 2020 from 2019. A lot of people thought it would be from 10 to 15 percent, um, but if, if you look at the reports from several cities, the 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 the, 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 the they ended up having drops of 19, 23, and 12 percent. Uh, and then it, it, it mentions that all these, all the numbers they give don't necessarily take into account all births, but comparatively to that same number the year before, it looks like a lot of these drops are on the higher end of estimates, if not higher than the higher end estimates. Okay, so, so and then it goes on to attribute some of this to the pandemic itself. And um, it even goes on to mention that some localities in China are easing the, 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 the two-child policy that, that took... Um, so, so it, it, everybody kind of knows the one-child policy. That was actually rolled back a bit in 2016 to the two-child policy. And now in some localities, they're even letting some families have three kids. Okay, so the reason why we're talking about falling births, though, is because when you think about economics, a growing labor force is integral to an economy. And I, I, I say this, well, when I say that, I'm accepting certain presuppositions I don't necessarily agree with, but it's still important to confront. Okay, so what, what do I mean by that? Well... If you listen to this podcast, you know I'm against government programs. So a government program that I'm against is, say, Social Security in the United States. Well, when Social Security was put into play, I think it was more, it was more, more than a dozen Americans that were working paid into it for every person who was taken out of it, which meant to, to support a pension, you had 12 people paying into the plan. So it didn't necessarily have to be an excruciating burden on workers. Unfortunately, the, 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 the Social Security program that was devised in the early 20th century um, didn't take into account for the average lifespan in America rapidly increasing. And even though we still had lar large families, the size of families decreased. So the amount of people you're putting into the workforce, um, even though it was still growing, 
um, the, the, the amount relative to the amount growing in the relative wasn't as, um, it, it wasn't equal. So now it is, it's of closer to two people who are workers are paying into social security for every one person who's taking out social security. And this is why people who um, actually want to talk about the, how responsible some of our policies are point to social security as a concern. So imagine the, the types of programs that plan to central planning, right? You have programs that rely on debt, and when you um, go into debt, you are expecting to pay it off at some point. Debt um, compounds an in interest, but you know if your if your economy was going to grow, it can offset the the, the the growing debt. And this is a line you hear from the left nowadays when they talk about zero percent unemployment rates from the Fed. I mean, zero percent interest rates from the Fed. I'm sorry about that. So if you borrow money, but the rate is close to zero that you're paying on it, and you know, population growth, the economy grows at a rate. So like if the economy grew like 5%, and you added debt, but it doesn't compound really, um, at some point you should be able to pay it off. Well, well, the issue here is if, you're, if your labor force actually isn't growing at nearly the rate that you assumed it would grow, all of these policies massively backfire. So China's running into this situation where everything about China is centrally planned economics. Um, they target certain percents GDP growth. They directly fund all kinds of um, they, they they directly fund all kinds of plans, all kinds of policies, and they have all these massive programs. But they don't have this massively increasing population that can justify the intense amount of debt they're putting on and things of the sort. So when you hear things like falling birth rates, and it's not just because of the pandemic. There's an article I bookmarked that's about the U.S. declining birth rates because of the pandemic and that shock and some economic consequences of that. Well, China has much more debt than China does. I mean, China has much more debt than the U.S. does relative to its budget and relative to GDP. So this is much more alarming for them. So when you hear all this um, information about how we should be afraid of China and how there's a new Cold War between us and China, you have to remember that as well as it can look like on paper, and, the, and this article alludes to that, you have to remember that to some extent they have these underlying ticking time bombs. And if you're a person who buys into Austrian economics or maybe even Chicago School economics, you, you are generally aware that a lot of centrally planned programs have shortcomings and they have unintended consequences. Well, this is the kind of thing that comes up um, the, the population trends and the dem demography trends that are going to undermine um, policies that were put into place without being prudent. Um, since since these policies were, put, they, they they had re they had reckless assumptions, and when the assumptions backfire, the policies are going to backfire. Okay, so I'm going to move on from that one, and I'm going to talk about an article from the Heard on the Street section of the Wall Street Journal, um, also from March first, and this is um this is pretty much an op-ed. Um, that, that's what that section is, but it's more on the financial end, on the business end of things. It's called China Needs to Set Labor Force Free. So um, I'm going to quote it a little bit here. China's perennial struggle with wasteful investment is well known. L -l Less well appreciated is the scale of wasted and frustrated talent as government regulations have long prevented millions of workers from setting in China's, from settling in China's biggest, most dynamic cities. China's household registration system is a holdover from the 1950s that restricts the, that restricts the ability of citizens to access social services or buy property outside the area where they are born. The system has been progressively loosened, but it still makes life difficult for new graduates and migrant laborers, particularly in the largest, most cosmopolitan cities like Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen. Um, and then goes on to say, for, for, so for, for further sustainable growth depends on funneling workers into the technology, high-end services, and export-oriented industries concentrated in the big coastal and... Uh, yeah, so... so Okay, 
Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut myself off there because I kind of lost my place. But, but, but pretty much what's saying is the biggest problem is when you want all the people in these highly productive cities that need employees that are like hubs of innovation, you have all these big cities that fo focus on tech. Well, you have rules that keep highly educated people from moving into those cities because you have these policies from 70 years ago that aren't relevant, but they're still there and they're enforced. Um, okay, he goes on to say China's rural, rural population is still enormous at over 550 million people, and it's but it's significantly older um, than it was a few years ago. And then it goes on to talk about how they're how the, the this ends up affecting the it ends up affecting the city dwellers the most. Um, so the the income between the, the like like the standard of living gap between income and rural um, communities has dropped, and it's because the rural groups have kind of enclosed on the uh, on the urban end. So it says no, so the, 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 there's no surprise that urbanization has slowed. The number of Chinese employed in urban areas grew only 1.9% in 2019, half the growth rate of 2010 and the slowest rise since 1990. And then it goes on to talk about the structural labor shortages in these areas. Um, the, the ratio of urban job openings to workers has steadily risen to 1.4 up from 1.1 1, 1 in 2012. So the policymakers are aware of the, this burden, but they're worried that there's going to be a public backlash from residents um, because they'll be allowing free immigration to big cities. I thought this was funny, and this is my added commentary because the article doesn't talk about this. But when you have immigration restrictions, you're essentially subsidizing the labor in that city. So if we're talking about, say, the United States, um, the, there are people who are worried that if you let Mexican immigrants in, that they'll lose their job. A lot of these people do manual labor, and they're worried that they'll be they'll, they'll let in Mexican immigrants that will get paid less, but they'll take those people's jobs. It's really an indirect subsidy to the American workers because somebody is willing to consent to doing the job, um, the, to, to, to do the same job for a lower amount of money. And the American worker says, well, no, I don't want to be undercut, so we should just artificially keep these people from having the opportunity to compete with me. So which, what these lo local um you know the, the the local policymakers they're they're worried that they they've had these they they have these artificial barriers in place and those actually privilege urban workers um at, at least in a, a service level extent because if you can't have competition from immigrants from the rural areas of your country then there are less people competing for every job so so every job opening if there's um 1.4 job openings for every one person looking for a job you have a lot more power as an employee and they they don't want that to go away. But it would actually be better off and goes on to say that um, it, it would lower the cost of m m most goods and services and, and, and all that kind of thing. So it would be better nationwide. It would increase opportunities. It would lead to be better matching of people to jobs that they're skilled for. And it, it would lead to all these um, growing industries that are in highly focused things that China wants to improve on and th things like technology. Well, the, it, it would be better off for the nation or better off for the average person in the nation if they did that. But there are these like kind of cronious central planning reasons why they, they, they have these policies in place. So I, I guess I bring this up to say, when you have a country that is unfree, it keeps things from happening in the most efficient manner. And some people will argue that efficiency isn't the um, ultimate end worth striving for. And to, you know, to, to some extent, I would agree with that. But, but it's a basic example where freedom leaves, leads to generally efficient outcomes. Like if you don't have these arbitrary restrictions, people can go on and if they're willing to move to a place that better fits their needs and an employer wants them to move there and take a job, 
then uh, the better employee will, will get the job. But if you have these artificial barriers up and people who are willing to move somewhere to get a job they're qualified for can't apply, well, then your applicant pool has shrunk and they're going to get less good workers. And knowing that there are less workers out there, those workers can bargain for more money. And then you have a, a, a smaller force because you have these arbitrary um, unnatural barriers to entry into the economy for competing laborers. So, so this is one way where China kind of sets itself up in this, um, even though it's not intended to set up the labor market in a certain way, it indirectly pushes the labor market in a certain way that that's inefficient and it's stunting the growth in cities. And, and it talks about how some cities are rolling back these regulations and are seeing success, but some aren't seeing much success because they're still because China is ruled by decisive top-down action, and China's um, authorities aren't doing top-down action on this front. So they're, they're stilted by the, the one-party regime that makes all the decisions, and the, the, this hinders their economic prospects. So, so this is one of many examples of this. Okay, so speaking of top-down rule, um, there, there was a big piece in the Wall Street Journal this week, and I, I know I'm alluding to the Wall Street Journal a lot. I'm going to – I'll, I'll mostly do that for now, but I, I will head over to a couple other sources. Um, so, so this was one of the headline pieces on Monday of this week, so March 8th. And it's called Xi Jinping's Eager Minions Snarl His China Plans. And the, 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 the subheadline is officials drive to please their leader results in unproductive practices. And this article is just all about ways that the bureaucrats in Chinese administration waste a ton of time, are incredibly inefficient, and aren't doing things that are productive. So just to give a few examples, it says that they're um, instructed to devote 70% of their time to um, a, a campaign that was designed to end poverty, but they end up doing something called, um, well, what ends up later being called formalities. Well, actually, I don't think that's the right term. I'm sorry. Um, oh, it's, 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 it's labeled formalism, but but it's essentially people doing things that so, so they can check the box and say they did it and say they did what Xi Jinping wants them to do. Um, and this is like the age-old problem. This is the age-old problem of things like the Soviet Union, where no matter what you do, if you have top-down rule, you end up having people who are set, essentially yes-men that, that are doing everything they can to cover themselves, and they aren't actually doing things that are efficient or good for people. Okay, so it talks about this in the context of the coronavirus spread in Wuhan, where it says local authorities were afraid to share bad news with Beijing, and that impeded the national response and contributed to the death toll. Um then, then, then it goes on to say that, that and that this is a, a, a more broad point, but it says that Xi and other senior officials publicly lamented how frontline bureaucrats were consumed with paperwork instead of fighting um, that the, 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 the contagion. Officials dedicated hours each day to filling out multiple documents for agencies, making overlapping requests for information, including residents' body temperatures and systems. Um, it goes on to talk about a different plan that was designed to um, end poverty. It says in the eastern city of Fuyang, local officials were disciplined in 2019 for ordering homes in some rural villages to be painted white so they would look nicer to party bosses, spending the equivalent of $1.2 million without addressing deficient roads and drainage systems. Um, so they essentially only cared about looking good, so they wanted more houses painted white so they'd look clean. And um, they, 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 they got caught, so it didn't end up working. But instead of actually fixing the problem, they just wanted to look like they fixed the problem. Okay. Um, so one of the funny things about this article is it kind of goes on a tangent that I didn't think would amount to anything. But, but it, ended up being, it ended in a kind of funny place. So it kind of talks about how 
the, the way they're fighting the, these inefficiencies and formalism is by essentially telling people to study what Xi Jinping says. And they, they pretty much say that if you study his um, philosophy and you care more about the principles of what is running the Chinese Communist Party, then you will actually be more efficient. So they ended up, um, they, they, they ended up setting up apps for you to study um, a lot of Xi Jinping's philosophy and then telling people, and then, then, then higher ups end up telling people to meet certain quotas of app usage to make sure that you've learned enough about the communist regime. And then therefore this would in some way fight formalism, but instead you're making people spend a bunch of time doing re research. Um, it even goes on to say that, um, okay, uh, I, I, I think this one's interesting because it's a direct quote here. So it says, some of Beijing's proposed remedies only seem to encourage more bureaucracy. As the pandemic's economic fallout heaped pressure on officials struggling to meet poverty relief targets, party authorities ordered in April a fresh push to curb red tape. Among its demands, compiling an anthology of Mr. Xi's remarks on formalism and bureaucratism and making a required reading. So they, they end up publishing a 136-page book. Um, and then they give it to everybody and they do seminars telling people to read this to, to curb, to, to, to curb waste of times. And this is kind of like if you're at a job and your job is, um, you're doing your work and you're fine at doing your work, but then your boss makes you show up to a meeting every week for an hour about how it's bad to waste time. And then what, what, what the meeting end up, ends up doing is wasting time. Um, and then it even goes on to say they end up they ended up releasing six new books, including a comic to teach officials how to recognize and prevent formalistic practices. One book cited case studies of local officials caught plagiarizing and forging paperwork to satisfy, to satisfy, to satisfy Xi's demands for more rigorous ideological training. One way to curb such misconduct, the book suggests, is to study Mr. Xi's ideas more closely. Only by studying hard and conscientiously acquiring a good grasp of Mr. Xi's political philosophy, the book said, can we continuously improve our abilities and better fulfill our responsibilities. So, <laughs> so it, it's just really, it's just really funny because you're, because I'm reading this article and, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, of course, of course China's bureaucracy slows them down. And then it's like, okay, well, China actually has a plan to fight this. They, 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 they've noted that this is an issue. How do they fight it? And it's like by making people read books about how it's bad. Um, so it doesn't seem like to me that they have a real plan of pre preventing this type of misconduct. And it, I think it's inevitable to bureaucracies. It's inevitable to massive governments, including our own, but it's inevitable to the Chinese regime. And how, how can the Chinese regime be successful if this is a huge element of what goes on there? Okay. Um, so, so then a couple other things when it comes to the, the central planning elements, um, and this is on a more economic side of things. One thing I wanted to briefly allude to, and this is something that I wish I could do more to allude to, um, because I'm sure it has fascinating roots, but I only caught this one article on it, and I don't know the whole background, but it's how China regulators sees housing bu bubble risk. And, <laughs> and it's really all about how... Um, it, the, 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 so it's Guo Xiqing, chairman of the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission, is deeply concerned that there's a bubble in, in China's real estate. He talked about how people um, always thought of it as a safe investment to invest in real estate, but now he's worried that there's a huge bubble. He's worried, the, um, so he worries uh, the possibility of a steep drop in home prices in the world's second largest economy. Um, yeah. And then he goes on to say that roughly one-fifth of Chinese bank loan books consist of home loans, and m most bank credit in China, even beyond the housing market, is collateralized by real estate, making stable property prices an underpinning of the nation's financial stability. 
So even if you're thinking about all this and you're thinking, okay, well, I can see a long-term threat of China's aging population. I know that bureaucracy is inefficient, but every nation has um, inefficient bureaucracies. We also have to add things like housing bubbles to that. So when when China centrally plans their economy, um, I, I have another article I was looking at that talks about how one of the main things the government did to to raise fund and local to raise funds in local governments is to sell a bunch of property to land developers, so they they've kind of artificially stimulated all of this development, and all it's done is lead to people investing in real estate, and it's kind of led to distortions in real estate markets. So all of these things are kind of unnatural and arbitrary, and they still have to deal with the fallout. Um, okay, uh, uh, the, so 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 that was just a quick one to say, hey. China, you know, as much as scary as they will be, um, when 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 you're gonna hear Doom say, saying about, well, America had like a had the Great Recession not too long ago that made us fall behind. America has all these other looming concerns, and well, and China's doing great. It's like, well, no, China has all these other looming factors. They're just not part of the narrative. Okay, so so this is from the Epoch Times, China's richest village in financial crisis. It talks about what. I'm going to butcher this name. It's, I, I, I think it's pronounced Wauzi Village in the Jiangsu province. Um, it was once touted by the Chinese regime as China's richest village is in financial trouble. Uh, essentially, um, you, you could kind of like buy shares in this village. It was, it was touted as collectively owned, even though it was run by the Wu family. And allegedly it has a debt load of 40 billion yuan, which is about $6.7 billion, even though their funds is closer to $1 billion. Um, if you owned this, like a share of this village, you were allegedly entitled to a 30% dividend, but that 30% dividend dropped to a 0.5% dividend, leading to essentially a run on the bank. Um, and now it's looking like it might be bankrupt because the funds are significantly lower than the debt and people don't really want to own this considering that dividend drop. So all, all this to say, hey, look, there are things that China touts. There are these ideas that they push to, to, to perpetuate the communist China party, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party, and say, like, hey, look, this is how our economy works. And then you listen to things like Slavoj Žižek, and Slavoj Žižek will talk about how um, capitalism works better when it's centrally planned. That's kind of what he hints at. He, he, he talks about it's not just markets, but it's directed markets is what makes things work. But you'll hear China touting, like, a, an amazing village. That is um, incredibly successful and incredibly valuable, and then all of a sudden, you realize it's essentially a Ponzi scheme because it was giving a thirty percent dividend, and now all of a sudden it has seven trillion dollars in—I mean, seven billion dollars in debt compared to the one billion dollars in funds. And uh, the it even notes in, the, in this article in the Epoch Times that pr- the the predominant way that it was funded what was through government loans. So, <laughs> so it's like the government's funding a um, a. A, a, what is essentially a city that, that is not collectively owned, even though it's touted as such, and it's deeply in debt, and it's essentially a Ponzi scheme. And I don't think that's a great look for a government that's supposed to be, um, you know, it's supposed to be an economic competitor to the United States. Okay, and then, and then another similar article from the Epoch Times, China's 18.5 billion semiconductor investment project fails, employees ask to resign. So... Okay, so it says here that the, so a notice was sent out on February 26th telling about 240 people that they're um, they're, they're not going to be continue they're, they're not going to continue working there. The company was which was once touted as the Chinese Communist Party's key to becoming a self-sufficient shipmaker made clear that it had quote no plan for resumption of work and production unquote. Um, and then it goes on to 
to, to quote an employee, I did not expect HSMC to fail so quickly. And there has been speculations that companies like Xiaomi or Huawei might take it over. And it says launched in November 2017, HSMC alleged to receive um, the U.S. equivalent of $18.5 billion in investment with 10% directly funded by the district government in Wuhan to turn Wuhan into a semiconductor manufacturing hub. So, and then then talks about how local officials highly valued the the the, the company HSMC. So, they they spent billions of dollars trying to essentially plan, um, you know, chip chip making because they want Wuhan to be a a um a hub for 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 making a technological the device that's important in the manufacturing industry, and it it goes bust within you know four years. Um, for, from late 2017 to early 2021, and, and it's done. So they, they, they essentially flush billions of dollars down the toilet. And th- this is an uncommon win. You don't have market forces dictating well, what kind of manufacturing plants to open and where. You, you try to artificially stimulate something, and it doesn't work. This is just kind of an economic truth, and this is another example of it. And just because the narrative is scary doesn't mean China's exempt from economic laws. Okay, and then to, to, to kind of wrap things up, I wanted to talk about one one thing that I found interesting. This is from the, um, I think this is the Australian Financial Review. Well, I'm going to double check real quick. Yeah, I believe so. A- AFR.com. They, they have an article titled China's Vaccine Debt Issue by Karen Maley. And she, she's a com- columnist at the AFR. And so, so, so if you scroll down to the end of the op-ed, there, there, there's a section called the Debt Servicing Threat. So what, 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 what is debt servicing? It's the amount of a budget year over year that is um, dedicated towards paying off the interest on your debt. So it's not the amount you need if you wanted to pay off the debt. It's just the interest on the debt. So if interest rates are 2%, it's that 2% that, you, that, that would have accrued. Um, okay, so they pointed out that China had run an expansionary fiscal policy since 2009, which has resulted in increasing budget deficits and an explosion in the country's debt bur- burden. He estimated that 15% of government spending last year went towards servicing debt, up from 13% in 2019. And he, wor- he warned that the debt sustainability of most provinces and cities would become even more worrying between 2021 and 2025. That's because as their debt levels continue to rise, an increasing share of their total revenues would go towards debt servicing. So it's essentially pointing out that your debt compounds exponentially. Um, in the United States, we have the government artificially pushing down interest, which generally artificially pushes down the interest on our debt. But when the economy gets better and we don't want to artificially push down the interest rates anymore, then the the, the, the debt goes up in the United States too. Now you got to so 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 if you go back 45 seconds ago, estimated that 15% of government spending last year went towards servicing debt. So I I, I looked up what the U.S. What, what what the U.S.'s was, and it says that the U.S. Um, their outlays on debt servicing totaled 345 billion in fiscal year 2020, in fiscal year 2020, and that is 5.3 percent of total federal spending. So China's outlays were about three times the U.S.'s. And if anybody's ever listened to anybody from like the Congressional Budget Office talk or any really like right right wing economist that actually cares about the debt. Um, they're, they're pretty alarmed by 5.3% being debt servicing, and they're pretty alarmed by that number growing rapidly over time. So if we compound that China's already at 15% and combine that with how their central planning isn't um, you know successful every turn it takes, and then we remember that their population 
is aging rapidly and their birth rates are declining and that they aren't going to have a workforce um, to, to replace their current one in a way that meets the needs of, say, their rising debt or whatever um, centrally planned policies they want to push. China, for, 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 from all accounts, just from looking at these articles, to me, seems like a ticking time bomb. And, and it's not to say that, that it for sure is. I could be missing a huge part of the picture. I could be missing like how some of their policies are deeply successful. But if you reject kind of the basic um, idea that all economics is about is GDP growth, then there's no real reason to assume that China is in a safe place. Because China does all these programs that are about inflating GDP growth, right? It's They, they, they do all these giant infrastructure plans, but, but then they end up wasting a ton of human capital on bureaucracy. They, they lock people up in certain regions of the country where they're not the most productive. And then they fund um, certain companies or certain areas directly in ways that is not efficient then you're not going to have your population acting optimally. Even if your population was acting optimally, you still are weighed down by the artificially adjusted population changes. They're, they're, they're getting screwed over by how um, their birth rates are rapidly declining, how their birth rates declined um, you know, 15% year over year. That's going to hurt them when it, when it hits. So I don't know if China is going to you know, have a massive economic collapse in 10 years or 30 years or ever, but... If somebody was bullish on China in like the long term, in 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 an eternal term, um, if somebody thinks 100 years from now China will clearly be the overwhelming superpower, I would just say, hey, if 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 you don't buy all these Keynesian priors, and you look at all these concerns, and you look at all the stuff we don't know about China, and we look at how they only really try to report good things, these should be ringing alarm bells. Um, that's all I'm trying to put out there. I'm not, I'm not trying to put out like an over, overwhelming thesis. So, so somebody could say, hey, look, China's investing in all these tech sectors. They're, 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 they're doing central planning right. But what I'm seeing is that there are alarm bells. Um, even, when they, even when they try to focus on a tech sector that is clearly important, like semiconductors, they, 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 they still take $18.5 billion and turn it into a flop, right? So I'm not convinced that central planning inherently leads to good results, um, and I'm I'm not convinced that it's really um, a reason to be scared of China. There are a lot of indicators that that point in the wrong way, and and then the, the, there are other arguments people will make about how we are reliant on China for certain things. Like when, when Trump first became president, there was all these arguments about how China and our relationship with China could undermine like our national defense. But I think those of you have been overblown too. The Wall Street Journal put another thing out um, or earlier, I, I, I guess it was late last week uh, on March 4th called Rare Truths About China's Rare Earth Metals. And it kind of talked about how China threatening to not sell us earth metals has led to increased capacity in the West in general. So a lot of market signals have um, stimulated significant rare earth metal investment and innovation in the West over the past decade. They remain the West's best defense against Chinese against Chinese mineral mercantilism now. So it's like even these things that, that they'll bring up, they'll say like, hey, we, we, we should be really concerned by China because they have all these resources that we import. Well, we, we end up like over the last decade, just, just we, we, we recognize that we say, hey, well, maybe we don't want to rely on China to import that. And then we find other ways to get them because even though rare earth metals have rare in their name, they're not actually that rare. It's just a lot of pollution that we didn't want to do before on our on our soil. Now we do to get them. But there are ways around the problems that people bring up with China. So I, I, I guess the whole point of this episode and your main takeaway should be 
that the narrative is more foggy than people might um, portray it as. If somebody says something like China is, uh, experts say that China is going to surpass the U.S. in terms of GDP, you know, at some point in the next five years, that might be true. But you have to think about how like, okay, well, their central planning has led to all kinds of flops. We know that we shouldn't really trust Chinese officials with reporting true numbers. You have to remember that the that their regime is very top down in a way that is deeply inefficient in terms of wasting human capital and bureaucracy, and um, and then it's you, the 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 population trends are the things that I find absolutely the most alarming for for their regime. So you gotta take all that into account. You gotta be an informed person. You have to think of things critically, and you have to look at it from all angles. And if you do all that and disagree with me in the end, fine. But these are things you still have to grapple with, right? I think I think that's the most important thing I want to get across. Um, okay, so I know that was long ranging, and I touched on like a lot of random articles. Uh, for for that reason, I'm going to be um, a jerk, and I'm not going to put all, everything in the show notes. If I alluded to it, I probably said its name. You could probably look it up, but um, I don't. I, I unfortunately I actually re- read a lot of things in print, <laughs> which means accumulating the links takes a lot of time, um, and I'm I'm going to be lazy on this one. But on past episodes, if you weren't aware, if I only talk about a few things, I'll, I'll link all of them as a resource. Um, but, but for now, I'm not going to go re-listen back and then find everything I referenced in this one um, on my desktop. But I I, I do hope you at least uh, you the I hope your takeaway is that you shouldn't inherently trust the narrative. You should think about it in a complex way, and anybody who is fear mongering might have an agenda. Um, that, that's the last thing I want to note. Um, okay, if you enjoyed this episode, you can feel free to check out the backlog of episodes and any future episodes that will pop up in this feed. You can find me on Twitter as Matthew, at Matthew T. Keck or at The Obey Podcast to get in touch. You can tell me that I'm deeply wrong about China or that I might be onto something. I'm, I'm okay with either of them, and I'd be always happy to chat about it. Um, you can also hear me on Beyond Talking Points, which is a to- which is a podcast I do with my co-host, who is more of a progressive, who is more of a... Um, He's not a neoliberal at all, but he is more of a, um, an anarcho-Marxist, maybe might be the best way of putting it, and we argue about all sorts of politics, economics, and philosophy, and a lot of our philosophical principles that go into things. Um, and that, that, that's always a good time, and if you want to hear me argue um, back and forth with somebody, that, that's a place to check it out. Um, okay, guys, well, if you got this far, I appreciate it, and for now, sign off. It's Matt Keck. Thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey podcast at anchor.fm slash Obey podcast or on Twitter at the Obey podcast. Until next time. Next time.